The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Thanks, Rebecca, for that message. Now we're going to go to selections uh, from our passage this morning, which is Isaiah chapters 24, 25, 26, 27, and I'll be reading selections from that. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. On that day the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven in heaven, and the kings of the earth on the earth. And they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. And they will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will praise Your name. For You have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For You've made the city a heap. The fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like a heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. So were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. 
We've accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. And that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. For has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones, the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No ashram or incense altars will remain standing. And that day from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who are lost in the land of Assyria and those who are driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, I want to start out this morning by telling you something embarrassing about my childhood or my teenage years. When I was 14 or 15, I had a vision. I was convinced by this vision, and that vision was I was convinced that my future was that I was going to be a rock star. I was convinced, as sure as I knew I was standing there every day in and day out, that my future was to be a rock star. I played electric guitar. I was in a garage band. I liked to sing and write music. I loved going to see shows. And I just knew that this is where I was headed. This is where I was going. Maybe some of you remember in your younger years a vision that you had of of, of playing basketball or football or of accomplishing great things economically. You had a vision, right? And I had a vision. Well, the funny thing is about that vision is that I was confident that it was going to come to pass. But that confidence that I had in that vision didn't lead me to go, oh, great, one day I'll be a rock star, so I guess now I'll sit on the couch and eat Twinkies. That vision of being a rock star didn't make me go, oh, great, one day I'll be awesome at the guitar, so I'm going to get back to playing Xbox 360 in the meantime. No, because I was convinced of my destiny, of this vision that I was headed for rock and roll fame, I got to work. I played guitar all the time. I tried to think like a rock star. I went to concerts. I read about rock and roll. I bent my life in the direction of this vision that I was confident was going to come. And this morning in Isaiah 24 through 27, the prophet gives us a vision of our future designed to shape the way that we live in the present. The prophet gives us a glimpse of what's ahead 
to dramatically change the way that we live today. And this morning, as we look at portions of these four incredible chapters in the prophet Isaiah, I want to suggest to you three things about this future vision. And the first thing is simply this. In that day, the Lord will finally and fully defeat his enemies. In that day, the Lord will finally and fully defeat his enemies. We've been reading Isaiah for 22 chapters, and there have been a lot of enemies there's been the Egyptians, there's been the Assyrians, there's been the Babylonians, there's been the Syrians, there have been people within Israel and the, and the community of faith as a whole have all been at different points considered God's enemies. And there's been a lot of judgment on those enemies. But when we get to chapter 24, the prophet zooms out and says, one day God will bring a final victory over the enemies that are behind those enemies, the big enemies, the enemies that lurk behind all of God's, all of those who are arraigned against God and against his people. These enemies are enemies that the New Testament talks about in terms of the enemies, sin, death, and the devil, what Martin Luther called the unholy trinity. And Isaiah 24 through 27 depicts God getting a final victory over every last one of them. This is why in 24, 21, we read that not only will God punish kings of the earth on the earth, but that he will punish the host of heaven, the spiritual powers in rebellion against him and that war against humanity. In 27, uh, verse 1, we get something that sounds like it comes straight out of one of my son's Percy Jackson books. We get a glimpse of God doing something that sounds more like the clash of the titans than anything else. We read, in that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. What in the world is that about? Well, we know that the nations around Israel worshiped lots of different gods, but every nation around Israel particularly celebrated the one God who'd become king over all the others. And many of the nations around Israel told stories about how the way that God became king was that he had to go to war against the sea monsters and the sea dragons that represented chaos and darkness and spiritual forces of despair. And that's how they became king in the past. That's how they became gods in the past. And the prophet Isaiah takes that mythical language and uses it to declare to us that we still have enemies out there in the world. That Satan and the forces of the demonic realm are at work. And yet one day, God will cut off the head of the snake. One day, God will defeat the dragon that is against us. The forces of chaos and darkness, that, as the New Testament puts it, are always seeking to steal and kill and destroy. But it's not just these demonic forces that God gets victory over in this vision of the future. It's even death itself. On this mountain, Isaiah 25 tells us, God will swallow up death forever. There's been a lot of death in Isaiah 1 through 23. A lot of suffering, a lot of sickness, a lot of violence, just like in our world. Death swallows up its victims in the world around Israel, just like it swallows up its victims in our world today. And yet Isaiah gives us a vision that one day God will swallow up death, that God will destroy death itself. The last enemy, Paul says, to be defeated is death. And here we get a vision of God himself gaining that victory over that enemy. 
And yet it's not just the devil and the demonic forces and death itself that God brings judgment and victory on. It includes even our sin. Our passage began, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And this judgment shall be as with the people, so with the priests. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The whole earth will experience judgment. Why? Because all have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. This vision that Isaiah gives us is a vision of a world in which every human heart has been infected and corrupted by sin. We have enemies outside of us, death and the devil, but we also have enemies inside of us, the sin that lurks in every human heart. Isaiah has been clear that God is a God of justice, and, and we've often seen in these passages that God is bringing uh, justice on behalf of the poor against the powerful. But here, when Isaiah zooms out, he reminds us that every human heart on every rung of our social ladder has been deeply corrupted by sin. And God will bring judgment on all of it, on all of our sin. He will get victory over all of the sin that lurks in every human individual and every human society. But the good news is that, well, when God gets victory over death and the devil, he destroys them. God's victory over our sin doesn't smash us to pieces. God's victory over our sin is like a surgical operation that removes the sin and allows us to be restored. In Isaiah 27, God says that he sent them into exile. Why? Because by this, the guilt of Jacob would be atoned for and they could bear fruit that comes after the removal of sin. This Passages give us a, a vision of a day when God will utterly defeat the demonic forces that array themselves against God, the death that haunts and hurts us, and the sin that lurks inside of us. What does this mean for us today? What does this mean for us today? How does this vision of the future inspire us to live differently in the present? Well, Scripture is giving us a lens to see that in our world, we too have enemies. And we can know that those enemies will be defeated. And knowing that they will be defeated gives us power and energy and courage to resist those enemies in the present. Now, as I was reading about God defeating sin and death and the devil, I couldn't help but think about how we see these enemies outside all around us. We're living in a world in the throes of death due to this pandemic. As I was going to sleep last night, I got an email telling me that a friend of mine who is a pastor and a father of a number of small children is in the hospital and probably likely to be put on a ventilator in the next 24 hours because of this death-dealing pandemic that we're living through. We're surrounded by the pain and the ravages of death. And we know when we listen to Isaiah, it makes sense to us that we have cosmic enemies as well. We know that Satan longs to steal and kill and destroy. Because when we look at our world, we see brokenness and evil that we don't even understand. We can't even get our minds around it. And the text is giving us eyes to see that that's because we've got enemies out there. But the text is also giving us eyes to see we have enemies in here. 
that life lived in a world dominated by death and the devil has wreaked havoc on our hearts. I remembered vividly as I was preparing for this morning one of the worst days in ministry I've had when a, 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 a household in the community where a, a man in his 20s and a young person in their teens were living together. And I was friends with both of them. And, and when we discovered that the young man had been abused by the older one. And so we had to rescue that young teenager from that house and confront that man in his 20s and declare to him that we were, we, he, that, that evil was not going to continue, that he had done wrong and that there was going to be consequences. And a few hours later, that older man in his 20s came into my office and he said, Michael, I was abused all my life. It wreaked havoc on me. And I swore I would never let that happen to anyone else. And now I realize that I have become the perpetrator. I have committed the same evil that ruined me on someone else. And I don't know what to do. Our texts give us eyes to see that there is evil out there and there is evil in here. But thanks be to God, the text tells us that one day that evil out there and in here will be finally defeated, that God will get victory over it, that he will draw out the venom of sin from our hearts and he will defeat death and the devil that are against us and he will heal us. And when we see that vision, just like when I saw that vision of being a rock star, I knew I had to get work, get to work with my electric guitar. When we see this vision of God getting victory over enemies, it gives us courage and strength to resist the powers of sin and death and the devil within and without wherever we see them in our world because we know that God's enemies' days are numbered. So the text gives us a vision of God's final defeat of his enemies. But secondly, secondly, the text gives us a vision that in that day, our victorious king will throw the world's biggest feast. The text gives us a vision that shows in that day, our victorious king will throw the world's biggest party. See, God clears the world of his enemies to make way for the feast for his people. On this mountain, the text says, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And scholars tell us that this isn't just any party. This is the party that you throw when the king takes the throne. This is an enthronement feast. This is the celebration of God's rule. And when God finally takes up his throne and his enemies are completely defeated, we cannot imagine the party that God will host for those of us who are his people. This feast is a feast of epic, lavish proportions. You can tell because the, the, the vision is like meat, wine, meat, wine, fatty foods, wine. It's like a description. He can't even, the prophet can't even contain himself trying to describe the lavishness of this menu. But it's not just a lavish menu. This is the feast where God swallows up death. And he doesn't just swallow up death. This isn't just the feast where God puts his enemies to shame and sends out death and the devil finally and forever. This isn't just the feast of joy. It's the feast where God finally and fully heals his traumatized people. He will not just swallow up death forever. No, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the shame or reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth. 
This feast is not just the end of our enemies. It's the beginning of our final and full healing. There is no illustration that I can give that will be powerful enough to remind you and me of those tears that we have shed that are too great for words, of those places of shame and reproach that we have borne that are so threatening to us that we can't even look at them full in the face. But whatever those tears and fears and reproaches and shame are in your heart, this is the feast where God gives final and full healing. This is the party where all that is bad and broken and wrong and devastated in us and outside of us gets healed and restored. And we're invited to it. This feast makes all our human feasts look like lonely TV dinners. This feast makes all our joys and hopes look paltry in comparison. This feast, this vision of this feast calls us to ask ourselves, what do we have to do to make sure we're there? And the text tells us in the very next verses, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, the language of waiting is liable to confuse us here. The text isn't saying that the feast is for those who, who waited in the waiting room, you know, who went through life's trials and tribulations going, well, you know, maybe God will fix it one day in the sweet by and by. No, to wait for God in the present is to cast all of our hopes on him. It's to invest all of our allegiances in him. It's to seek to set ourselves as citizens of his kingdom, awaiting his, king, his kingdom's arrival. That's why just a few verses later, it says, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For 22, 23 chapters, Isaiah has been showing us all the false idols that we could trust in, all the false hopes that we could put our hopes in. This feast is for those who say, to hell with all of that. My hope, my hope is in King Jesus, the King of keys and Lord of lords. My hope, my destiny is only in this King who offers to bring a kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean for us today to get a vision like this? It means for us to hear the invitation and to cast all our hopes on him. It means to stop trusting in the idols and the alternatives and to live as if all our hopes are in him. Maybe today you feel like you've been running for God. The text makes it clear this invitation is open to all, even his enemies. I love what it says in Isaiah 26, 19, uh, uh, or excuse me, not in 26, 19. Uh, in one point in 27, Isaiah says, uh, I'll go to war against my enemies. I'll destroy them completely or they might make peace with me. And so God is telling us there's judgment if we do not cast our hopes in him, but he stands ready to offer us peace and salvation and hope if we will but cast our allegiance, our lives, our hopes, our trust on him. Brothers and sisters, this vision of this feast is worth giving our lives to. 
And if we believe the picture that Isaiah is describing, that's exactly how we'll live in the present. But third, the text gives us a picture, a vision that in that day, the Lord's victory will lead to resurrection and restoration. The Lord's victory will lead to resurrection and restoration. In the world that Israel lived in, death was the end. There was no hereafter. Death did not give back its victims. But here we learn of a king who doesn't just swallow up death, but declares, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give back to the dead, give birth to the dead. Life outside and beyond the grave. And this resurrection isn't just new life in terms of us walking around on the earth. This resurrection is a restoration of humanity to our job description, our restoration of humanity to that for which God has been calling us from the beginning. In chapter 27, after God deals with all of our enemies, within and without, he says this, in that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am the keeper of this vineyard. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. But in the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Brothers and sisters, do you see what's going on here? Weeks and weeks and weeks ago, we heard Isaiah's first song of the vineyard in chapter 5. When God said his people were a vineyard that he had planted with everything they needed to produce fruit, the fruit of justice and righteousness. God told us that he had called his people to be a blessing in the midst of the earth by living as his vineyard, producing fruit of lives of love and holiness and justice and righteousness. But instead, when God showed up to his vineyard, he found nothing but injustice and unrighteousness and unholiness and rebellion and sin. And so for 23 chapters, God's been telling us that our being a failed vineyard has brought God's judgment on us. But here we're told that when God deals with our enemies, we get resurrection and we get restoration. God has not given up on his vineyard. No, he's going to do whatever it takes to bring life out of death so that you and I can be the just and righteous and holy and loving community that God has always called us to be. God gives us a vision of life beyond the grave, but not just any life, a life of holiness and love and goodness and mercy and peace and justice and truth. And just like that vision that I got of being a rock star that sent me into the practice room to work on my scales, and we learned that God has not given up on us, that he will fulfill his purpose, that he will make us as a people the embodiment of his justice and righteousness and holiness in the midst of the world, then we seek to live just and holy and righteous lives today. We seek to become the kind of community that bears the fruit of justice and righteousness in our care for the poor. We seek to become the kind of community that embodies God's holiness and love in our families seeking to be fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and aunties and uncles 
who embody the love of God and the care for our neighbor. We seek reconciliation and renewal with our enemies, seeking to make them become friends because that's where we're headed. Because one day God gives us a vision when resurrection will mean that we finally become the fruit-producing vineyard he has planned all along. You may have noticed, friends, that I am not a rock star, despite the hair. That vision that I got when I was a kid did not come to pass. Why is that? Well, I guess along the way I got other visions that were stronger, and also, there just weren't enough experiences that confirmed that vision. Over time, the vision of me becoming the next Bono became less and less plausible. I had fewer and fewer experiences that made that seem real to me. And maybe some of you are out there thinking when you hear about this vision of the coming kingdom, yeah, nice work if you can get it. But how can I know? What confirms this picture? Where's the evidence? And what I'm here to tell you this morning is the scripture just, just doesn't just give us this vision from the prophet Isaiah, but it tells us that we can hang our hats on this vision because God has confirmed it in the man Jesus Christ. That while Isaiah gives us a picture that one day God would put on his sword and come and save, God has demonstrated in Jesus that he left the throne of heaven and became one of us. The word made flesh out of his overflowing life of love. Isaiah gives us a vision of a God who will throw a feast on this mountain for all people. But scripture tells us that God confirmed that vision when he came in the man Jesus and sat in the upper room and said, take and eat, this is my body. I will sustain you. I will cause life. I will bring joy at the cost of my own life. Take and eat. Isaiah gives us a vision of a mountain on which God would swallow up death. But scripture tells us that God confirmed that vision when we look up and we see Jesus on a hill called Golgotha, not swallowing up death, but being willing to be swallowed by death for our sakes, to let the punishment that was upon us fall on him, to take the full brunt of our enemy's blows all the way to the grave. And Isaiah gives us a glimpse that one day the dead will rise, but Scripture says you can hang your hat on that vision because our King Jesus didn't stay in that borrowed tomb. But no, as our friends have told us, as our fathers and mothers have told us, early one Sunday morning, he got up with all power in his hands, the risen Lord and King of all, who went into the teeth of death, who went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil and came back victorious for our sakes. And Isaiah gives us a vision that one day God would gather all the nations to himself and that he would rule and reign. But the scriptures tell us that God confirmed that vision when King Jesus, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand on the, fa uh, the Father on high and now rules and he will come to judge the living and the dead. And he entrusts us with his spirit so that we might be empowered to be witnesses and ambassadors and storytellers who say, I heard that story from Isaiah, but I've seen it coming to pass in Jesus Christ. We can hang our lives on this vision of Isaiah, brothers and sisters, because we have looked into the eyes of Jesus and seen the one who has lived this story for us, who has paid for it with the price of his own blood, and who has paid the down payment for this new world that's on the way through his risen life.
You can trust this vision of Isaiah's because the spirit of Jesus is sent into our hearts, drawing us to look into the face of the man from Nazareth and see the risen and exalted Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who will one day return and bring his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, if you have never, if you have never trusted your life to that Jesus, Isaiah reminds us that the invitation is on the table. Come, cast your lot with King Jesus. Ask him to forgive you for your sins and to make you a citizen of his kingdom that is on the way. And then join all of us everywhere who claim Jesus as King to come this morning and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the risen King, who will sit at the head of the banquet table when the Lord invites all nations to the feast. And then having come and having worshiped, let's go out and live by the power of King Jesus' Spirit as citizens of the kingdom, citizens of the world on its way. Let's pray. Jesus, we are overwhelmed by the goodness and glory of the vision that you've given us this morning. Confirm the reality of that vision in our hearts by your spirit and transform us, King Jesus, so that we might live and labor as citizens of your king, citizens of your kingdom, who love and serve you with our entire lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we continue to worship this king in anticipation of his coming kingdom by giving generously from what he has first given to us.